0: Welcome back to Supreme Myths after our three-week hiatus. I guess this is kind of season three of this podcast. Um, I hope everybody had a safe holiday. And not much has happened, so there isn't much to talk about. No, I jest. Um, I'm really excited today uh, to have as my guest Professor Fernita Tolson. Uh, She is a professor of law and vice dean for faculty and academic affairs at the University of Southern California. She's a graduate of Chicago Law School, where she is visiting... Virtually uh, this winter, which is, I think, the best way to visit anywhere in Chicago. uh, Virtually (laughs) that is. She clerked for two federal judges after law school. She is a nationally known expert on election law. One of the reasons she's here, among many, Uh, she's a commentator for CNN. uh, The author of too many articles, op-eds, and essays to name. But she does have a new book coming out with a fantastic title. I think Uh, in Congress we trust enforcing voting rights from the founding to the Jim Crow era, which I'm not sure has ended, but we'll talk about that um, <laughs> later. Um, Fernita, welcome. Thank you so much for being here.
1: So excited to be here, Eric. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, we tried to do this during the election. You were too busy. You were too much in demand, so I'm glad I was able to get you this week. Um, so normally I start by asking my guests to, to mention three myths about whatever they're an expert in. We'll do that second. First, we're going okay. to talk about current events. Uh, the article of impeachment, and I use the word article because I'm very upset about it, just okay. came out. Um, and it alleges, you know, incitement to insurrection and all that. It mentions the Georgia phone call that it, that we have a tape recording of. But it's not a separate article.
1: Right.
0: My first question about current events is do you agree with that strategy?
1: Um, This is so unprecedented. I've, I would be— Uh, remiss if I sort of pretended like any of this is normal. I'm not sure if it's right or not. And I'm happy to admit that. Like, I I see the benefit of it. Right. It keeps it streamlined. It keeps people focused on uh, the most recent sort of transgression, because you have to keep in mind that this president has been a habitual norm breaker. I mean, theoretically, we could have had separate (laughs) articles for a number of things. right? Right. It's just that I think people are so shocked and so focused on what happened on January 6th that perhaps it makes sense as a strategy to get people on board, because it does seem like more Republicans are speaking out about what happened on January 6th as opposed to speaking out about what Trump did with the Georgia secretary of state. So it could be part of a larger political strategy. But um, honestly, I'm not sure what's right anymore. You know, I just you know, I'm, I'm so disturbed and so terrified and so stressed that I just want them gone. <laughs> I, I, I agree. I, I'm
0: hoping I'm hoping Pence does the 25th Amendment, but he won't probably. Um,
1: it will be, be to me the most straightforward way of neutralizing him. Right. Because I think some of the concern is what he'll do in the next 10 days. Um, the time from the Georgia secretary of state call to the uh, storming of the Capitol, that was like 100 hours. I mean, he wrecked that much havoc in 100 hours. Right. Um, so I I shudder to think about what he can do Um, in a little over a week. Uh, So 25th Amendment makes the most sense to me, but I I just don't think that Pence will be on board.
0: Let's talk about um, the Georgia phone call for a second because uh, I've listened to it and there is no question it is on tape. It's not like the Ukraine phone call. This is a phone call that we have a tape recording of. And in that phone call, he clearly tries to coerce the Georgia Secretary of State to, quote, Find votes. That's Trump's. Those are Trump's words. But the reality is, when he says, you know, find votes, he means make up votes. <laughs> that's what he means. How can that not be an obviously uh, an obvious abuse of power? A president can't do that, right?
1: Right. So I agree that it is it is an abuse of power. Um, but I think that's different than getting a criminal prosecution. Um, so much of the election laws turn on state of mind, um, and so and to me, this is the perversion of it all, right? Because he might actually be. Um, It might actually be difficult to prosecute him if he actually believes his delusion. Right. So if he's saying to the secretary of state, fine, you know, what was it, 11,780 yeah. Trump voters who <laughs> um, whose votes aren't being counted because of this widespread fraud. And he actually believes that then it becomes more difficult to prove that he's actually trying to uh, encourage a solicit election fraud. Right. Which is bizarre right because we're faced with two possibilities either the president has committed a felony or the president is a delusion, a delusional person who believes in unicorns and dragons and everything else right like or I both mean, the, the republicans in a right, the republicans in a in a really bad place
0: yeah um i so one last question about impeachment i think um, Okay. my view has been and i don't think i've changed it i think i think they can clearly imp- the Senate can try – he can be impeached after he leaves office, I think. Do you agree with that? Yeah, okay. I agree with that. Okay. I mean, to be fair to the audience, it's an open constitutional law question, but no court is going to second-guess it. So it's up to the Congress, I think. Is that fair?
1: We can, we can also agree that it's not justiciable, right, Eric, that the courts wouldn't weigh in on this question.
0: Exactly. That's, I think that's yeah. – I think the court has suggested that in other impeachment cases. I think it would suggest suggested mm-hmm. here. All right. right. That being the case – He's not going to be impeached before January 20th. There's no way the Senate's going to do that. I mean convicted before January 20th. Right. So to me, the House is, again, making the mistake they kind of made last time. I I think they're rushing it and oversimplifying it when they don't have to do that because it can't finish in time anyway. And as you pointed out, I think five minutes ago, we could probably list five to eight impeachable offenses over the last four years. I wish they would take their time. I mean, I don't know what the rush is since they can't get him out anyway.
1: I think it has to do with political momentum, right? So the momentum is behind, you know, the most recent tra- transgression. Um, and so I think that is perhaps why they're focused so narrowly on just looking at what happened on January 6th. Um, in terms of strategy, though, uh, keep in mind, we are living in a time in which people have uh, their, their sense of focus. <laughs> <That's why> their <laughs> sense spans are so short. Yeah. So it makes me wonder if the American public has an appetite for um, a lengthy proceeding, uh, impeachment proceeding, where the House lays out all of the different things that Trump has done or if people will lose focus. Um, you, you can't tell me that they're they aren't also thinking about that as well. The fact that people may not they may not have their attention for much for much longer, uh, much longer. Excuse me. Um, and so that may be why they're just focused on this one narrow thing that everyone is universally outraged about.
0: Fair enough. Well, as a lifelong Democrat, I know you are too, I assume. Um, I hope they do better. You know, you know we, we, we kind of aren't that great at this kind of thing. And I hope we do this one better. That's all. I you know. Yeah, yeah.
1: We we miss the boat
0: a lot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, um, but- yeah. So let's turn to your real specialty, um, which is election law um, or okay. just elections in general, voting, election law, whatever, defined as broadly as we can. Go ahead and identify, if you can, three myths about elections in any, in any, any way you want.
1: I had to think about this one. Yeah. <laughs> so the first one uh, would be that um, this, this myth that elections only matter every four years. Right. Um, I, I do think one of the lessons of the last four years um, has been that election law matters all the time. Right. It matters, for not just the midterms, not just for elections at the federal level, not just for president. It also matters locally. It matters for state legislatures. Um, We're about to enter into another round of redistricting. Right. Um, The census numbers are coming out. Um, And so it matters which party uh, leads up the state legislature as you embark on that process, Uh, assess the districts for the the next 10 years, Uh, possibly shorter, Eric, as we know from the case law, but, you know, at least the next 10 years in most places. And so um, elections matter across the board. And I think people are really, really um, learning to pay pay more attention um, to elections beyond president.
0: I think that's a great point. And I'll get back to it. What, What are the other two?
1: So the second one is uh, when people say that we are in a a republic and not a democracy, uh, that's always a bad argument. Stop saying that. (laughs) Um, It is nominally true. But we are a republic that has embraced democratic norms for well over two centuries. There have been fits and starts. Uh, We have there has been backsliding. uh, But generally speaking, we have been moving in a democratic direction. So that doesn't settle any arguments. Instead, it just makes election law people mad. Um. So that's
0: the second myth. <laughs> and that one, by the way, I completely agree. And Neil Gorsuch's book, which is called The Republic, If You Can Keep It, is horrific from page one to the end. But that's one of the reasons it's horrific, because he <laughs> seems to focus heavily on this idea of versus republic versus democracy. All right. Sorry. And number three.
1: Um, And let me just piggyback on that. Republic actually embraces a number of different types of government. A republic is not even necessarily inconsistent with a a monarchy, which is something that people don't understand and appreciate. So. So stop saying that. So that's the second myth. Um, The third myth is. um, Hmm. I, I kind of went back and forth between and let me look at my list. Your vote doesn't matter. People. That's a myth that people believe. But I, I think I have one that's more important than that. Yeah. Um, the, this idea that the Supreme Court can disentangle itself from politics. Uh, we saw the, the court kind of attempt to do that with the Rucho decision. Right? Rucho versus Common Cause, which is the case where the Supreme Court held that partisan gerrymandering claims are non-justiceable political questions. Um, and so I think that that is also a myth. Right, I think in the 1960s, when the Warren Court first became really embroiled in politics, and you know, we get, we got one person one vote, we got the court recognizing an implicit right to vote in the Constitution, um, the court heavily policing the political sphere with respect to you know race, uh, race discrimination in voting. Uh, I think that opened the door, and you can't close it. And so these claims will appear in just a different form. Uh, so you'll have more partisan type claims under the Voting Rights Act, you'll have more partisan type claims under uh, other branches of the 14th Amendment and the 15th Amendment, given the overlap between race and partisan affiliation in this country. And so it's a fool's errand to think that, um, the, court, that, that the court thinks that it can just simply remove itself from this sphere. Um, and in fact, that probably causes more damage and fixes nothing.
0: Right. And on that last third one, I mean, the court didn't view Shelby County, in, a, you know, as a political question. And it seems to me, it does seem to me how much progress we've made on race when it comes to voting in Congress's opinion should be Congress's judgment to make.
1: No, absolutely. Um, yeah. And that sort of ties into my new book, which um, if I ever finish writing it, it's just. <laughs> hold, 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 hold that Let's thought go. for no.
0: one second. We're going to get to your okay. book. I want to go okay. back to myth number two because I think myth okay. number two is also at the intersection of your work and, mm-hmm. and is so important. And this might be controversial to some. I, I think you and I are going to agree on this maybe, but I think to others it's going to be very controversial. My reading of history is that when, the, when Benjamin Franklin said – I think it was Franklin, right? A republic if you can keep it. What he re- when he used the word you in that sentence, he was referring to white property landowners. Right When he said that only white property landowners were voting, I don't think he was referring to the people. I think he was i their ideas of a republic is very – I think are quite different than how America should or does view itself today. Um, and that's why I think your second myth is so important. Do you think I have that right about Franklin? Well,
1: so Franklin was a, uh, actually a little bit more progressive on voting than some of his uh, – his, his colleagues, because he, you know, there's this famous uh, Benjamin Franklin quote where he says, and whom is the right of suffrage? Is it in the man or is it in the the the, the donkey, right? Because um, you know that that goes to the point of when people own property and they lose that property, they lose their right to vote. And so technically, it's like the property can vote, but the man can't. And that makes no that made no sense to Franklin. So okay. um, I didn't he know was that. Thank one, you. No, of course, he was actually <laughs> one of the early advocates of getting rid of property qualifications for voting for this reason. Um, But I do think you're right in the sense that they were still thinking about the electorate fairly narrowly, although I also want to dispel the notion that um, women and and black people weren't voting in the founding era. In some states they did vote, you know, and um, sometimes it was through drafting errors, right? Massachusetts for a time African-Americans were voting because of a mistake (laughs) in the statute that that they that they that they fixed. Um, but, but there were, and, and, and Eric, I'm sure you've read Dred Scott, you know, that uh, Justice Curtis and his de- dissent yes. pointed to the fact that African Americans were voting as um, as evidence that they were uh, fit for citizenship. Yeah. In dissent, um, we should make
0: it clear in dissent.
1: <laughs> in dissent, yeah. right, yeah. right. Um, and so it, w- one thing I've, I've realized in sort of looking at this notion of a republic is that uh, people had very different conceptions of what a republic Stood for now. One principle that emerged over the course of our early years is this idea of majoritarianism. But even that was contested, right? Who is the majority? Who counts for purposes of determining whether government is republican? And there was a lot of disagreement about that.
0: Right, right, yeah. I, I think you know it's it's kind of a calling card of the Federalist Society to answer everything with "We're a republic, not a democracy," and I find I actually think there is something racist and sexist inherent. In that idea, even if they don't mean it that way, I, I do think uh-huh. there's and and, cla- and, and and something about class too. I think in that in yeah. that idea. Um, all right. Well, let's let's go to your book because I'm I'm so excited by this title, um, "In Congress <laughs> We Trust: Enforcing Voting Rights from the Founding to the Jim Crow Era." Is it pure history? Is it analysis? What what is the book going to be?
1: Um, so the the book is a, a lot of it is history, although I do conclude with the normative implications of that history because I do think that the so the the, the historical part of the book the whole point is to show that Congress has been more proactive. We're regulating elections and voting, then we give Congress credit for it. And the reason this is relevant is because the current the court's current position is, you know, very federalism centered, right? They view it as a, a state regulated process. They think of federal intervention as something that should happen only sparingly. The reality is that they're looking at Madison's constitution, but they're not looking at the, you know, civil civil war post Reconstruction constitution right. and thinking right. about this. But even taking that off the table, because honestly, I don't think that point is new. People have made the point that Reconstruction fundamentally changed the relationship between Congress and the states in this space. Uh, But my point is that actually Congress had a lot more power prior to the Civil War that they used to intervene in elections in a way that the court hasn't fully appreciated. So even the federalism narrative isn't an accurate characterization of the relationship between the Congress and the states prior to the Civil War. Um, and so that's one thing. That's another myth that I'm trying to dislodge. Um, and 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 in some ways, the book is is was inspired by Shelby County, right? Sure. If you read Shelby County, the the decision is bankrupt of any discussion of um, the not only the post Reconstruction um, Congress and how active Congress was in trying to make sure the Southern states had Republican governments, right? They they completely reset the baseline for what Republicanism meant. Uh, But it's also bankrupt of any discussion of how Congress was uh, um, intervening and regulating elections prior to the Civil War. And and, and in my head, I'm like, well, if you're going to focus on Madison's Constitution and you're trying to get us back to the um, (laughs) pre-1868 version, why aren't you talking about these other things either? So,
0: you know,
1: the the genesis of the book really is sort of my anger and uh, frustration with the court and how they view Congress's power.
0: That, that's interesting, and I agree 100 percent with everything you just said. And, and I'm curious if you're going to agree with what I'm about to say, and you may not. Um, <laughs> what, what The way you said that about election law, uh, voting voting rights and all that, is mm-hmm. what I talk about all civil rights. Congress has been to the left of the United States Supreme Court on civil rights with the exception of, what, 15 years maybe from 1960. I don't count Brown. I mean, Brown is is Brown, and then we have nothing for nine years or so, you know, eight years. Or so right. let's say the early 60s to the mid-70s, you know, 75 or so. Other than that, Congress has been to the left of the Supreme Court forever, in my opinion, when it comes to the rights of, of traditionally disadvantaged groups, which is why I despise the court so much, especially – one of the reasons – especially when it comes to its relationship to Congress. And the last thing I'll say before I ask you a question is Oliver Wendell <laughs> Holmes said, we could live without judicial review of Congress. It's judicial review of the states that we need. Now, he may have been talking about it from a uniformity perspective, but I think he also felt – as deferential as he was to both, the states and Congress, he thought we should be even more deferential to Congress. And I agree with that. But when I say that to most liberals and most progressives, they start yelling at me and say, yeah. there's no help if it's not the Supreme Court and all this. I say, no, they only helped for 20 years. Then they bring up Obergefell, and I say, you're right. That's an exception. All rules have an exception. But generally mm-hmm. speaking, the Congress has been way to the left of the court for most of American history on civil rights. Do you agree with that?
1: Um, I do think I agree with that. And I would even go maybe a little bit further, right? Nice, great. (laughs) Brown was, Brown was 55. The, there was a Civil Rights Act in 57, right? So, um, it wasn't a very strong one, which is why most people overlook it. But Congress did do something, right? So, um, I do think Congress has, has largely been to the left. Um, but I wonder, So this is actually a hard question for me when you think about questions of judicial review because to what extent do the branches kind of like feed into each other and respond to each other, right? To what extent do things happen because one branch has moved, then the other branch feels obligated to move, right? And so to the extent that we are distrustful of either Congress or the courts, uh, I do think that they work in opposition sometimes in a way that actually favors progressive ideals. Um, and so it's entirely possible that Brown happened in 55 and by 57, Congress felt like they had to do something, <laughs> right? Because the court was already at the forefront. Um, and what we have gotten a 64 civil rights act had the court not, you know, in 59 and Cooper versus Aaron said, look, you know, 50, we are, yep. we made this decision, 58? 58,
0: 58. Yeah, and Brown was 54. Right. Sorry. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, um, I always think about Brown, too, since Brown That's one fair.
0: That's fair. <laughs> for, for those, um, uh, for Nita, not everybody listening yeah. are, are lawyers and con uh, law professors. Brown yeah. 2 <laughs> said the states had to enforce Brown 1 with all deliberate speed, which in effect meant never, because in 1963, right. the South was still completely segregated. So,
1: right. Yeah. Exactly. And, um, and in 58, Cooper versus Aaron, the court stood by the decision in Brown and said that states had an obligation to desegregate. Um, and so I, but I do think the sequence of events made Congress feel like they had to do something. Um, and so I don't think that we can think about this question of the court's role without considering the fact that the branches often act in opposition to each other in a way that might actually work for the greater good.
0: That, that's a, a great point. My friend Barry Friedman at NYU um used to write very long law review articles about the dial- – I think he called it the Dialogical Constitution. If I- Barry, I hope I have that right. Um, but I remember <laughs> reading them when I was a kid, you know, 1995. Um, and uh, I think he wrote them in the 80s. And, but he was right, though, he's making – and, he, and the, the point of all of that work, which was a lot of pages, is the point you just made. And, you know, uh-huh. he, he really carried it out. That what we have is a conversation between the elected branches, the court, and the people and that it takes all three kind of to get the court where it needs to go. I agree with all that. What, what I disagree with, Barry, and, and, and I'm not sure where you stand on this, is mm-hmm. I think we could still have that with much more deferential judicial review. Not, not no judicial review. I'm not in favor of that. Mm-hmm. But okay. I think if we had clear error judicial review, the kind that okay. – Are you with me on that?
1: <sighs>
0: it's hard. I know.
1: It is hard, and so what do these words mean? And let me, <laughs> let me let me explain why. That's my question. Couldn't congruence and proportionality technically mean clear error? Like it? Like these words actually don't mean it. They they are devoid of context. If you think about of content without context, because the standard that the court currently applies, the court doesn't apply consistently. Like, can you explain to me why portions of the Americans with Disabilities Act or the Age Discrimination and Employment Act? No, are I can't. Different from, uh, <laughs> the the Voting Rights Act, right? Like the court has purported to review congressional acts under the 14th Amendment pursuant to this con- con- congruence and proportionality standard without providing an objective sense of what that means. And so even if we change the standard, um, what does that really get us? Because technically, technically, the court could be deferential, Right. using the words congruence
0: and proportionality. It's just that the court doesn't want to. Well, I, so, I, so I, I, this is an issue I have. Well, I wrote a whole book on it, so I've given it a lot of thought. And, <laughs> and, and I, I do think that judges understand burdens of proof and standards of review. So the, the, the analogy I give all the time, court of appeals judges really do defer to district court judges on factual findings. Mm-hmm. Not, not always, but – and the judges I know personally, at least before the Trump era, hopefully after the Trump era, they take that standard very seriously. They really do. And they're not going to re- – now, they may, in a very politically charged case, they might or might not, you know, use that standard. But they do like 95 percent of the time or something. They understand what it means. I'm only going to reverse this decision if I can write an opinion. That shows it was clear error. I don't think Shelby County can be written honestly. Well, it was written dishonestly anyway. But in, in an honest world, I think clear error review might might have saved that statute if we had a tradition of clear error review. We don't have that. It's kind I'll of like rational for basis opinion. tests for, for economic laws, right? I mean the court yeah. has been able to enforce that standard pretty well.
1: Yes, but usually we're arguing about the 5%, not the 95%. That's true. (laughs) And then because of the 5%, that's how we end up with rational basis review with the bite. Fair enough. That's another another Um, way of trying to skirt the hard questions.
0: I agree. So the the title of your book refers to the founding to the Jim Crow era. And I'm kind of curious when you think the Jim Crow era ended because it wasn't 1964. I can tell you that. I have people. No. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, so the book goes to the beginning of the Jim Crow era, which I think okay. is a, a little bit easier to pinpoint yes. um, as the late 1880s, early 1890s. Um yes. Even though Reconstruction, you know, uh, really Reconstruction, one thing I'm finding in my research is Reconstruction really ended like 1873, <laughs> which is not something that we talk about. It ended with the, the panic of 1873 functionally ended Reconstruction. I know we everybody loves to talk about the 1876 election, especially in light of our current circumstances. But Republicans, once they lost control of Congress in 1874, it was a wrap. Uh, um, in some ways, the 1875 Civil Rights Act was really sort of the last dance, right? You know, it was a uh, uh statute passed as a uh, m- memorial to charles sumner like but explain what it was court-
0: explain what it was
1: so, yeah so the 1875 civil rights act looked a lot like the 64 civil rights act it uh prohibited discrimination in public accommodations movie theaters restaurants and things of that sort um there's a really famous article by uh uh michael mcconnell where he argues that school segregation actually comes within the uh, the sphere of the 14th Amendment, because it was, uh, it was debated as a part of the 1875 Act, even though they ultimately took it out, right? But yep. they sort of thought that their power reached ban and school segregation. Yeah, just for um, the record, and-
0: I think his article—I love Michael McConnell. He was a huge inspiration to me about Judicial Review earlier in my career— that article is ridiculous, and it's terrible, and I'm sorry it's gotten all the press it has gotten. There is no scenario where the original meaning of the 14th Amendment in 1868 meant states couldn't segregate schools. I'm, I'm just going to go – there just isn't. It, it doesn't exist. It's not there. I don't care. Go ahead. Sorry. <laughs>
1: So I will say that um, I agree that there's no scenario in which the 14th Amendment was designed to outlaw school segregation. Yes. I will agree with that. Um, yes. But that that only matters if you're an originalist, Yeah, right. <laughs> right. I'm not.
0: Yeah, I don't, ha- uh, I don't have that faith either, as you know, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, but the uh, Supreme Court struck down the 1875 Civil Rights Act in 1883. Um, and, and it kind of goes to the earlier conversation we were having, Eric, about how the, the branches kind of work in opposition to each other. It's like the Supreme Court's pushing back against this expansive reading of the Civil War Amendments, and Congress was trying to push forward. And even as late as the 1890s and turn of the century, Congress was having conversations about enforcing Section 2 of the 14th Amendment against the states that were still disenfranchising people, right? People think that Congress quit when Reconstruction ended. No, Congress was re- using this power under Article 1, Section 5 to review the elections of its members, to refuse to seat people who were elected um, in fraudulent congressional elections, right, where black people were disenfranchised, where there right. was fraud and violence. Um, they were trying to, so section two for people who are not, uh, well steeped in obscure constitutional provisions <laughs> is a provision that, um, allows Congress to re- reduce a state's delegation in the house if the state abridges or denies the right to vote of its citizens. Um, well, it's, it's male, it's, it's
0: male citizens, right?
1: Well, as amended by the 19th amendment though, in my view.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: Um, so There were discussions in 1901 um, about enforcing that against certain states that were still disenfranchising folks, and importantly, it's race neutral. Just talks about abridgment or denial, so it's different from the 15th Amendment. So, so I think if you look at that history, it's pretty. It's, it's fairly easy to pinpoint when Jim Crow started. Much more difficult to pinpoint when it ended.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure it has. I think it's just, as, as I forget her name wrote, it just goes, it's just been sent to the prisons. But let's that's, that's not get into that right now. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, the new Jim Crow, you know. Um, yeah. So can you, this is an, such an unfair question, but can okay. you kind of sum up in a few minutes some or many of the ways that um, – Mostly Southern states, but not just southern states, kept African Americans from voting from the really eighteen, you know, seventies until the mid nineteen sixties, late nineteen sixties, and, and I know it goes through today with other things, but can you kind of sum that up? I'm not sure everybody knows that story.
1: No, absolutely. Um, and I think the story actually makes an important point about voter suppression being contextual um, yep. because a lot of the things that we a lot of the things that we look at look at now as being sort of run of the mill voting regulations were actually used in suppressive ways in the past. Yeah. So a common one is voter registration right now we're everybody registers to vote. And, and some states do have same day voter registration. But generally speaking, it's not unusual to have uh, a registration deadline that's a month out Um uh, in the 1870s and 1880s a lot of southern states passed laws that made voter registration requirements that were sometimes as much as four months out <laughs> right Mississippi <laughs> was notorious for this Right. Um, but um, some of the other requirements are you know you have to have um, an address uh, and a lot of the former slaves did not they lived in houses that didn't necessarily have addresses right, right. very similar to what we saw in uh, South Dakota where um, uh, Native Americans who lived on reservations didn't necessarily have addresses and they passed a voter identification law that required an uh, ID with an address. And right? we know so, why they did that. <laughs> exactly. So a lot of this stuff is contextual. We look at these things as this doesn't happen now. This is from 100 years ago. And I'm like, no, you know, voter registration. Um, they they gerrymandered a lot. Right. So. um mississippi in particular and mississippi is a, a state i love to beat up on because my parents are from mississippi and I, <laughs> I continue to believe it's like the worst state in the union um but in 1890 they actually led the charge with changing their their requirements under their state constitution to disenfranchise african americans and poor whites um and so then the rest of the confederacy basically followed mississippi because they were um they were very effective uh, the 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 difference between 1888 in 1892 is that African-American turnout went from about 30% to close to zero. Wow. That's how effective they were. Wow. Um, and so other states followed suit um, because they also wanted to depress that population. Um, so the, the interesting thing too that people don't realize is that those state constitutions were race neutral. Uh, so they did not on their face mention race. They, they really did rely on discriminatory application by election officials in order to be truly effective. And so, it was also a way of getting around the 15th Amendment and trying to preempt any federal involvement.
0: Right, right. Can, can you talk about you literacy these, tests for a minute?
1: Yes, literacy tests and poll taxes. How did I forget those, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so um, some of these state constitutions re- required individuals to read a provision of the state constitution, and this was during a time where the, the literacy rates were very, very low. Um, so, it was difficult for a lot of people to do that. But this is where the discretion of election administrators became very important, because if they had a white person who couldn't read, they could just pass. Say that they passed the test. Right. Um, but if they had a black person who could read, they could just fail. Them, right. So this is where discriminatory uh, implementation was very important. Um, poll taxes. Uh, poll taxes were very, very effective. Let me just mention briefly Georgia's poll tax where it was cumulative. Uh, so if you didn't pay it one year, it just continued to accrue nice. so you could pay it. But I don't think whites—I
0: p- don't think whites paid the poll taxes, right?
1: No, no, it's—it's—they it's, had no interest in actually collecting the poll tax, right? It's, <laughs> right. it's a tax that was never enforced, which is right. uh, contrary right. to the idea of taxes. Uh, but it, it was quite effective at uh, basically cutting African American turnout in Georgia to uh, the bare minimum.
0: So wh- one of the things I. I don't think a lot of people know about, po- about literacy tests. So, so I think a lot of people have seen them on the Internet or someplace. Th- these were <laughs> tests that I'm sure I could not have passed in many cases. And I, I doubt very few con law professors could have passed in many cases because the questions often made no sense. There was no answer. But And the it's point- time. Say again?
1: And it's time. Yes. So even if you get all the questions right, I doubt you can answer 60 questions in, in 15 minutes.
0: Right, right but what, yes and, and these tests were used throughout the south to really disenfranchise african americans but the point i want to make about it that a lot of people don't i found i found out that most lawyers don't know this in fact i found out most con- non constitutional law professors don't know this the supreme court upheld literacy tests that's the amazing yeah. thing in 1959 5 years after brown they i think it was 59 maybe 58 but i think it was 59 in Lasseter versus north carolina they upheld them It took Congress to eventually Mm -hmm. get rid of literacy tests, which is another example, a very important one, I think, of the Congress being much more progressive. And the person who wrote the opinion in the North Carolina case was Justice Douglas, who was one of the Mm -hmm. most progressive Supreme Court judges ever. Um, I think that that opinion is unmistakably horrible in 1959, given what they knew was happening, what they knew was happening.
1: Yes but i i've wondered this okay so 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 two points the first is yep. that if anybody who takes election law with me has taken a literacy test because i make my students take it because so okay. <laughs> <a literacy laughs> they have to take it Good. um but but second i wonder the extent to which the court lassiter is a product of uh a supreme court that had been very active on racial issues because keep in mind we talked about cooper versus Aaron. that yes. was a year last was decided a year later yep. um and so if you're in the court and you just had to reassert your authority, <laughs> right? you had to <laughs> basically make a statement saying, you know, we decide what the Constitution means. Right. Cooper versus Aaron is important because it's one of the strongest articulations of the court's role since Marbury versus Madison. Right. So um, it makes me wonder if Lasseter is a response to that. Right. Lasseter is it's, it's so horrible, but th- maybe that's the only way I can make sense of it. Right. They, they had already rocked the boat so much. That lasted it was a time in which they decided to take a step back and let things cool off.
0: What I find fascinating about your comment about that is in 19. So Brown is 54, Brown II is 55, mm-hmm. Cooper is 58, and that did involve Arkansas and one good deed by the court and the mm-hmm. National Guard. But it is right. still true that in 1959 America, the South is completely segregated. And not your schools, yes. but parks. Prisons, phone booths—you know, you know—I mean, everything was segregated. Yes. Lassiter is unforgivable in the context of a completely segregated America. Five years after Brown, I mean, that's
1: look at the bookends, though, right? Look at the book, bookends. You have Cooper in '58, you have Gamillion in '60, you have Baker versus Carr in '62, you have Reynolds yeah. in '64. Like the court, it's it's it's, it's the the year is remarkable for being a terrible decision in a decade in which you had great decisions. Right. And so that's why I just feel like it deep in, in my the, the pits of my soul. Something else had to be going on because yeah. <laughs> it, it makes no sense. Right. right? The, the, how is the court aggressive on all of these. gamillion is really like Reynolds versus Sam's. Well, tell people what that Reynolds, is. T- t- tell people oh, what right? gamillion. So, so gamillion, the court um, articulated its uh, willingness to police racial gerrymandering. Right, right. The Gomillion. The the, <laughs> the funny part about gamillion is that they were able to gerrymander in um, Alabama in a way that was completely effective without really having the technology that we have now. Right. right? They uh, the city of uh, I'm trying to remember which city it is. It is. It's where Tuskegee is.
0: Is it Mobile? Uh, or?
1: It's not Mobile. Uh, I want to say maybe Tuscaloosa. I don't know. I don't remember. But the, the city in Alabama they drew a 28-sided figure that yeah. put all of the black people outside of the city, outside of the district, right? And and all of the white people in the district. And so basically, they the, the black people had no political power. And they did this without having the technology that we have now. Uh, but more importantly, the court said that this is a potential uh, constitutional violation. And the court yeah. was willing to um, sort of police this domain, even though, and, and the interesting thing is, Frankfurter wrote that opinion, but he had also written Grove, um, which was, I guess, about 12 years earlier where the court basically said that it would not weigh in on questions of uh, Hands off. political power when it comes to, to drawing districts and such, yeah. right? So the fact that the court was willing to be more aggressive in this space, uh, if if you look at that decision and then consider that Lassiter was the year before, yes. it, that just, it just makes no sense.
0: You mentioned earlier that your parents are from Mississippi and you think it's the worst state. Let me... I'm not going to get into a battle over what's the worst state. But I will say that's, that the civil rights activists of John Lewis's generation, I think, thought that Alabama was the worst and Birmingham the worst of any city. You know, Birmingham and Mobile – well, Birmingham, not Mobile. Bur- Birmingham in 1964 was just – you know, it was just apartheid. It was apartheid all out, full full force, as much or more than any other American city. Um, we're running out of time. I want to – this is not a fair qu- – I'm asking you an unfair question right now. <laughs> but you're really smart, and I'm really interested in your take on it. And I think this is um, – it's about democracy and elections okay. um, and free speech. I think it's the one – the most important question facing America right now. How does a democracy or, or even a democracy slash republic, you know, whatever – how, how does a free country, a country that believes in freedom of speech and free elections and racial equality in theory, in theory, mm-hmm. and gender equality in theory? How does a country that believes in all of that fight anti-democratic elements in its own citizens? How do we how do we fight against people who don't want those freedoms when we are we are bounded by our commitment to those freedoms. It's, I don't, I I have no answer to this. That's why I'm asking.
1: So there's, there are a couple, I have a couple thoughts about that. The first is don't assume that the fight ever ends, right? We've always been fighting against these elements. And I just think that the Trump presidency has brought out the worst of them, um, but but the worst of them recently. They've always been there. There's always been this very interesting duality to America where we're both the people who turned out in Georgia to vote and, uh, turned out in historic numbers in a special election, which is special elections are a form of voter suppression. They are designed to, to only turn out the most impassioned partisans, right? Um, it's a, it's a tactic, especially in Georgia, where there's an ugly history behind it. But people turned out because they felt like their votes were the best way of articulating their dissatisfaction with the status quo. Less than a day later, um, another segment of our population turned out because they're dissatisfied as well, but they used violence, right? Those that's two visions of America, but it is America. Right. And so part of the reason why this fight is always ongoing is because we have to push back against who we don't want to be. And we have to build up who we want to be. And I think, you know, hopefully and, and I believe this, the majority of Americans identify more with the people who cast ballots in Georgia than they do with the people who stormed the yeah.
0: Um
1: So I don't think that there's a permanent fix in a sense. I just look at it as an ongoing battle. Um, but one thing I know that's not the right answer is this: Well, we have to turn the the page and we have to heal, and we you you cannot we can't move forward without accountability. We can't move forward without you know being clear in our repudiation of what happened on Wednesday. There has to be consequences, right? Otherwise, we don't really deserve the title of democracy. That means that they win, <laughs> right?
0: Like the,
1: the the part of America that we are rejecting wins if we don't do anything about what happened.
0: I I agree with that. Was well said. Um, I I guess where I feel a lot of tension, and people like Jeffrey Stone, who I really respect, you know, and Jeff, he he was actually we had a podcast. You know, he's one of the great defenders of free, maybe the greatest defender of free speech among modern law professors, University of Chicago. He and I agree on ninety nine percent of things. He blurred my book, (laughs) but we disagree on this. Um, I have kind of a European perspective on free speech. Um, I'm, okay. all, I'm the guy always invited to be the one American law professor who is not a free speech exceptionalist. Like, I, um, and I, I, there's a tension to me between recognizing the free speech rights of people who will then deny free speech to other people. <laughs> in other words, if, if their if their line was we want everybody to speak freely and everybody to be equal, but we think X Y that's one thing, but attacking the capital is attacking, in my view, free you know, free speech in a way. I mean, it's using violence. Mm -hmm. They have a right to say we're upset with the election. We think there was fraud. They have a right to do all of that. They don't have a right to storm the Capitol. But the speech led to the storming of the Capitol. (laughs) And Europe would, would, in most countries, stifle the speech. And I'm not saying that's the right answer, but I think it's a serious tension. Americans don't think. We need to think more about that idea. Uh, that sometimes speech really is harmful and really has to be blocked.
1: I'm not I'm not opposed to to regulating it and I know that that's probably bad to say but keep in mind I also think campaign finance laws are important. (laughs) Um, So you know I to the extent that speech is a marketplace um, we regulate every other marketplace right like we live in a capitalist society but it's not free of regulation. Right. why do we make the comparison of free speech as being a marketplace of ideas and then proceed as if we, that marketplace doesn't need to be regulated? It does.
0: That's a great point. My colleague, my my, my former colleague, um, a former colleague of mine wrote a book saying applying free market capitalism to elections is an incredibly dumb idea. <laughs> um, and, and, I, and I think that's where we get campaign finance reform invalidations by the Supreme Court. Um, and I think – Obviously corporations have some rights. You can't just the government can't go into the New York Times and search it, you know, without any warrant and all that stuff. But the fact that the New York Times has some rights doesn't mean Exxon has the same rights as you and I to participate in our elections. And I can't Right. It's so hard to get conservatives to see that, but to me it's such an obvious point. Yeah. Yeah. All right. On that kind of somber note, Fernanda, <laughs> um, thank you so much for doing this. I really, I know your time is, is, is very spare. So thank you so much for doing this. I, I appreciate
1: re- it. it was a great conversation.
0: I really appreciate it. When COVID is over, we're going to do something in Atlanta, I hope, and I hope you can, you can make it. Um, but we, we, we have to wait till COVID's over. Though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Take care. Thanks a lot.
1: Take care.